Hello and good afternoon. I'm your host today, Abner Belsky, and we are back with another episode on Abner Sports Throwdown. Today, I have a very special guest with me. Please welcome Mr. Jared Diamond, who's a sports writer for the Wall Street Journal and author of the book Swing Kings. Thank you so much, Mr. Diamond, for joining me on my podcast today. So let's begin. First question is, everyone knows that you're a great journalist, but everyone starts with a dream and the first job. So at what age did you realize you wanted to go into the world of sports, but more specifically journalism? And what was your first real job fresh out of college? Yeah, I was really fortunate uh, in more ways than one. Uh, first off, because I knew this was what I wanted to do really for as long as I, I can remember. I don't think there was ever another profession I ever envisioned myself going into. Um, I think I figured out pretty quickly, like many people, that uh, I was not going to play center field for the Yankees. Not quite fast enough, not, not quite strong enough. I think that was pretty obvious by the time I was about seven years old that my baseball career was not going to go too, too long. Um, so it, be, it became sort of this mission to figure out, all right, how do I uh, continue to pursue my love of sports, specifically baseball, uh, without being on the field? And when I, when I first learned that, hey, there's people out there, that those guys you see on ESPN or those people who write the articles in the newspaper, those, that's a job and you can get paid to do it. Uh, I was pretty much hooked at that, at that moment. Uh, when I was eight years old, I started my first little sports journalism venture. It was a newsletter that I typed up on a very old computer using Windows 95, which uh, your listeners probably don't even know what that is. Uh, typed it up, had my dad make photocopies of it with a Xerox machine, and would stuff it in my classmates' uh, milk carton mailboxes in their cubbies at school and third, second, third grade. So that was my first uh, my first foray into the field. And it sort of just went from there. I was sports editor in my high school paper. Uh, I worked for the local weekly paper in my ho- hometown uh, outside of New York City, went to Syracuse University for college and ended up becoming the sports editor of the Daily Orange, which is the great Syracuse University uh, campus newspaper. And uh, after I graduated my senior year, which was 2010, uh, I had an internship uh, at a paper called The Virginian Pilot, which is based in, in Norfolk, Virginia. It was a six-month internship, so I moved down there, and I spent this summer covering uh, a lot of different things, but primarily AAA baseball. Uh, the AAA affiliate of the Orioles are based in Norfolk, the Norfolk Tide. So I covered that team in the 2010 season. They had some some pretty interesting players on it, honestly. Jake Arrieta was on that team. Zach Britton was on that team, just to name a couple names that uh, you know are still kicking around all these years later. Uh, and then that internship ended in the fall, and I really wasn't sure what I was going to be doing uh, at that point until uh, I happened to, by dumb luck, read an article in the New York Post Uh, online uh, around September, maybe October, that was all about the Wall Street Journal starting this sort of new sports venture. And oh, by the way, uh, one of the main editors is a man by the name of Bill Eichenberger, who is just by a complete coincidence is a guy who I had met on a previous internship 
uh, a couple years earlier. So I decided just on a whim to send him a note, totally cold, saying, hey, I don't know if you remember me, but uh, you know, we met on this other internship and I just read that you're gonna be at the Wall Street Journal and I'm in Virginia and I don't know what I'm gonna be doing. Expecting it to go nowhere. Uh, and he wrote me back saying, of course I remember you. And oh, by the way, we have a, a job opening right now. Why don't you come into the office and meet my boss? So I did. And a few months later, I was hired. So my first full-time job was at the Wall Street Journal. I started in January of 2011. And I, so I've now been there for, you know, just shy of 11 years. That's awesome. And then also going back to when you said that you started this, um, this, I, I guess, a p newsletter, you said, at the age of eight. That's crazy. And not too many people know what they want to do when they're that young. So that's incredible. And uh, so what age were you when you got your, when you were fully accepted as um, a writer at the Wall Street Journal? So I was uh, just shy of my 23rd birthday. I was, they hired me. I was, I was 22. Uh, they offered me the job in November of 2010. Uh, sort of right around Thanksgiving. Uh, my first assignment actually was covering the pinstripe bowl at Yankee Stadium <laughs> because Syracuse happened to be playing in it and they wanted coverage of it and they knew I went to Syracuse. Uh, so I was hired in November of 2010. I didn't actually start till January of 2011, but I was still 22 when I started. I'm 33 now, so a lot has changed uh, since I started the Wall Street Journal. I started covering baseball in 2013. So I've been. Uh, this is my ninth season covering baseball, pretty much exclusively. That's great. And would you say? Because I know you mentioned you had an internship and you covered minor league baseball. Um, would you say that covering that helped you prepare for uh, when you eventually covered major league baseball, or would you would you say that helped in any way? It was an incredible experience covering minor league baseball, and absolutely helpful for a variety of reasons. One, and the biggest one, uh, was that it was the first time I was on a beat myself and I was responsible for everything, right? There was no backup. It was me. I owned that beat. I had to control that beat and I had to take responsibility for my mistakes. I had, I had and I got to enjoy it when Things run well, and I don't think you really understand what it's like to cover a beat until you're in a, a clubhouse all by yourself. You're the only reporter there, and every all the attention is on you. So that was a great experience. The other great part of that as well was just being around baseball. Right, I had covered a little bit of baseball the summer before uh, the season, the summer of 2009. I had an internship at MLB.com covering the Yankees, where I. Uh, you know, it was essentially the backup Yankee beat writer from MLB.com, a great, great internship program. But, so while I was in the clubhouse and while I was around the players, that was, it was great, but it wasn't the same as suddenly you're alone and it's you and you're the guy. And I really learned that summer in Norfolk, sort of the rhythms of baseball, how things work, right? There's a, there's a language to it. There's a lot of tradition. There's a culture that comes with being in a baseball clubhouse that it's really hard to know until you do it. So it was a really great experience. And I think 
uh, any baseball aspiring or any baseball or aspiring baseball writer would absolutely benefit from an, from a, a stint in the minor leagues. I think you could learn learn a lot. I know I did. Yeah, I bet. I mean, there's like you said, there's so much to learn and so much to experience before you move up to the big leagues. So I totally agree with you there. So the next question is, so you're obviously very experienced when it comes to your knowledge in the baseball world. So what are your views on the pitching cheating scandals that are taking place in the league today? And what do you think the league can do to put a stop to this? Yeah, it's been a big story. It's unfortunately uh, perhaps the biggest story of the season so far has been uh, things like spider tack and other sort of sticky substances, which is frustrating, I think, uh, for anyone who loves baseball because in so many ways this has been an unbelievable season, right, with the amount of young talent that exists in the game right now. At this moment, we have guys like Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Fernando Tatis Jr. and Ronald Acuna Jr. before he blew out his knee and Juan Soto uh, and, of course, Shohei Otani and what Jacob deGrom is doing. The amount of talent, the amount of greatness that's in the game right now is extraordinary. So it's kind of a that we're talking about spider tack, we're, we're talking about sticky substances, and what's especially frustrating about that is that it didn't have to come to this. Uh, this is not new. Pitchers using illegal substances on the balls, using sticky substances on the balls. Uh, many people have been sort of talking about this for years, you know. And I'll bring up someone who certainly, uh, you know, is right now has much bigger problems to worry about. But I bring up Trevor Bauer because he he sounded the alarm on this topic. Years ago, and a lot of people in baseball knew this was potentially a problem. And Major League Baseball sort of just, I don't want to say ignored it, but at least looked the other way. Essentially said, oh, you know, yeah, maybe it's a problem, but it's not really a problem with fans, not really a problem with the media, it's not really getting a lot of attention, so let's just not really worry about it. Well, guess what? Now here we are in 2021, and it's become this huge problem, one that baseball probably could have stopped a few years ago, before it, before it spiraled out of control. Now it has spiraled out of control. It forced baseball to make big changes in the middle of the season, which is never uh, ideal. And it took a, a lot of attention away from much better topics like the play on the field. So uh, I'm glad they're finally doing something about this. I think since baseball cracked down on substances, the, the game has gotten better. There's been more offense. There's been fewer strikeouts. I think that the quality, the aesthetic of the game has improved since then. I just wish uh, it didn't happen in June of the middle of the season instead of three years ago. Yeah, I totally agree. And I'm also a huge baseball fan. So it was a bummer when I obviously heard about this. But like you said, Trevor Bauer, um, he called out Garrett Cole years before and brought it up. And he said before the season, uh, before like two seasons ago, that he could boost his numbers if he used what all the other pitch what all the other pitchers were using. So I guess he proved his point, but it kind of ruined uh, baseball for part of the season. So it's a huge bummer. Um, But I have another question. So why is the MLB giving, I think it's a 10 day uh, suspension, but it's like paid vacation. Can you maybe elaborate on why they chose to do that instead of something more severe? Yeah. You're asking about Trevor Bauer, correct? Uh, no, not, 
hour. Just pitchers in general, when they're caught with the sticky substances, they get, uh, I think it's 10 days, and it's basically paid vacation. Yes. Look, it's interesting how baseball came to that conclusion, how they, they went about doing that. Uh, I think what baseball is trying to do here and what they're really interested in, actually, is not the players and more the teams that were enabling this issue. So you think about what the punishment is. Yeah, it's 10 days off for the player, but the real punishment is for the team, right? Because they're not allowed to replace that player on the roster. So they're playing shorthanded for 10 days, which for a general manager or a manager is a huge, huge disadvantage. So I think what baseball's attitude here was is that, yeah, it's one thing that players are doing this, but the real problem is that teams are a lot, not just allowing it, but actively encouraging it, that teams essentially have people in their organization who spend time using chemistry to concoct better sticky substances. Uh, and those are the people that baseball really cared about. I think the attitude is if we uh, make it clear that we are going to go after the team, we're going to punish the manager and general manager, which is something that uh, MLB said that it would do in these situations. That... Uh, would have a real impact in ensuring it sort of is out of the game. And I think they were more interested in that than they were the players. Also, so practically speaking, when it comes to discipline for players, uh, you have to, they have to deal with the union and you deal, it becomes a labor issue. When it comes to suspending general managers and managers, there's no union to worry about. So I think all of those things sort of factored in. Yeah, that actually makes much more sense. Oh, thank you for clearing that up. Um, so in your opinion, who do you see winning the World Series this year and why? Well, back in spring training, my prediction was New York and Atlanta. So I don't feel too good about that prediction now. Didn't quite, I don't think that one's going to quite uh, come to fruition, you know, languishing around yeah. 500 and the Braves languishing around 500. So maybe what I'm saying is maybe my predictions aren't worth all that much. But look, as, I, as we sit here now, I think in the American League, I think you have to feel very, very good about what Chicago is doing. Uh, they've, they've, played, they've played great. They look great. Uh, they have a chance to get better as the season goes on. Eloy Jimenez uh, and Luis Robert are expected to come back to the White Sox at some point this year, not to mention anyone they acquire in trade. So I had to pick a team to kind of come out of the American league right now. I would pick Chicago and in the national league, man, it's really fascinating what's going on in the national league. Nobody saw San Francisco come. What a huge shock that the giants have the best record in the major leagues, especially in the division that has Los Angeles and San Diego in it. And that the giants are holding them both off. In fact, they're five and a half games ahead of the Padres right now and two ahead of the Dodgers. Really, really stunning. Uh, my sort of sleeper thing, to some extent a sleeper, though, in the National League, everyone wants to focus on the NL West, understandably, but I am very, very high on what Milwaukee is doing uh, over there. I think it's really incredible, the success they're having. They have a seven-and-a-half game lead over Cincinnati right now in the NL Central. And to me, what makes the Brewers so scary is that assuming they do win the division, and it looks like they're going to run away with it right about now, they're going to go into short playoff series with Corbin Burns, who has an ERA of 2.16, and Brandon Woodruff, who has you know been 
present year rate of 2.04, been even better. You go into a short series and you have to face many of those games with Burns and Woodruff on the mound. That's really scary. So I, 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 I really like the Brewers. I, I think people are sleeping on them a little bit despite their really great record. Yeah, I think those are two really strong picks, and I can see them either one of them winning it all or making it pretty deep into the playoffs. So those are two pretty strong picks. Um, so the next question is, what uh, what made you or inspired you to write Swing Kings? And can you give my audience a brief summary of the book? Yeah, so Swing Kings is my first book. Uh, it came out on March 31st, 2020, which uh, when we picked that date in 2018, seemed like a phenomenal date to put out a book. Uh, turned out not to necessarily be the best day to put out a book. Uh, who knew, right? I guess... No one could have predicted that two years earlier. But uh, so what Swing Kings is, it's the story of baseball's home run revolution. It's a look at why and how we reach this point where home runs are flying out of ballparks uh, at, record, at a record pace. And it's particularly focused on changes to the swing and players that change their swing uh, using some pretty unconventional methods with some unconventional teaching. Uh, main characters include J.D. Martinez and Josh Donaldson and Justin Turner and many other big stars that people know and a bunch of people that you're, that the average Hazel fan probably doesn't know. Uh, people uh, like Craig Wallenbrock and Doug Latta, really interesting mad scientist coaches who are very quietly and behind the scenes changing baseball in many ways. And, I was inspired to write it actually years earlier, uh, in 2016, uh, my first year on the national baseball beat toward the end of that season, heading into 2017, I became fascinated in this idea of the independent hitting instructor working with major league hitters who then would go on to see enormous turnarounds in their performance. The guys I mentioned, the Martinez's, the Turner's, the, the Donaldson, and one after the other, they would say, yeah, I learned this new swing from someone that never played professional baseball, someone that was really on the fringes of the industry. And I didn't understand that because I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to know how is it possible that a guy who no one's ever heard of, that never played pro ball, was able to teach major league hitters and have those major league hitters say, I learned more about hitting from this guy than any professional hitting coach I ever had. That didn't seem possible to me. It made my head spin. So I wrote an article about it that appeared in the journal uh, in spring training in 2017. Uh, it was a story about uh, these players. And I think I realized pretty quickly after that story ran, it was, it was a success, that there was a lot more to the story, that it, there was still a lot more to say. And fortunately, other people agreed, uh, which led to me writing a book proposal and uh, ended up, selling it and and writing my first book which was a really incredible incredible experience that's awesome and i think the concept of it is fascinating as well because uh, like you said i i can't even imagine how someone with no prior i guess major league major league baseball experience can make someone hit a ball like four like 40 feet uh further and just every every little bit makes a huge difference uh, at that point in time so it's that's awesome 
So this is a question I've been really looking forward to asking you. So what's been your favorite live sporting event that you've covered slash attended? Oh, that's a great question. I've had the opportunity to cover so many exciting things, uh, Super Bowls and Final Fours and college football title games and, of course, uh, lots and lots and lots of baseball. So I'm going to give a, a couple answers here. Uh, in, terms of my, uh, in terms of baseball, the, the one that really stands out to me if I had to pick one was probably a game six of the National League Championship Series in 2016, the, the, the game where the Cubs clinched the pennant. Uh, yes, I was also at the World Series that year, and that was very exciting as well and incredibly memorable. But there was something really special about the Cubs clinching the pennant in Chicago that I'll really never forget, being at Wrigley Field for that moment, seeing the excitement and hearing the excitement in the entire city that night. It was different than even Game 7 of the World Series in 16, which was in Cleveland. Uh, there was something about being in Chicago the night they clinched the pennant that really stuck with me, still stuck with me. It was a really memorable night. Uh, other ones that stand out, uh, you know, the 18-inning World Series game between Boston and Los Angeles in 2018 was quite a night. Pretty much everything from the 2017 World Series. Uh, there are a lot of moments from that that are really memorable. Uh, but, if I really, but even going back further, there's one other one that, might trump them all for me. And maybe it was because it was the time of my life where these things are so memorable. It was when I was in college uh, in 2009, March of 2009, I was covering Syracuse basketball in the Big East tournament, back when the Big East tournament was a big, big deal. Something else that your listeners probably don't really remember because the Big East isn't really the Big East anymore. <laughs> uh, in that uh, Syracuse, in the second round of that tournament, had a game against UConn, who was one of their biggest rivals at the time, that went to six overtimes. Uh, it was a six-overtime game. It was unbelievably memorable. It was so exciting, especially being in college, being in Madison Square Garden when I was 20 years old, 21 years old, for a game that I knew was going to go down in history as one of the most memorable college basketball games ever. Uh, that is something that may even trump everything I've ever covered in baseball for, for a variety of reasons. That's awesome. And those are all like pretty uh, historic moments. So I can't even imagine what it was like to witness those. So that's really awesome. So you wrote a few months ago that the Dodgers Padres rivalry was becoming one of the best rivalries in the game. I would say that's a pretty bold claim with the Yankees, like in the Red Sox rivalry and other historic ones that, uh, have been the best in baseball for a long time. Why do you think this? In order to have a great rivalry, or when a rivalry is at its best, I should say, uh, both teams are good. And the Yankees and Red Sox have not really had that in a while. You know, They had that in 2003 and 2004, when the Yankee-Red Sox rivalry was just through the roof exciting. But it's really, it's really lost a little of its luster since then. Uh, the Red Sox have had some bad years. The Yankees now are having a, a tough year. What makes the rivalry great is that the Padres and Dodgers are both really good. They have stars, and they seem to sort of have a little juice uh, between them. I think Fernando Tatis Jr. brings a real real something to every single rivalry. 
So look, nothing's going to top the historic nature of Yankees, Red Sox. And that also applies, you know, Cardinals, Cubs, Dodgers, Giants. But as we sit here right now, uh, just given their proximity, proximity geographically and the quality of the teams and the emotion that seems to be in those games, uh, Dodgers, Padres is really exciting. The only thing that's been unexpected, like I said before, is that the Giants have, uh, are currently beating them both, which, uh, again, nobody saw coming. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that that, that was a real shock to me because I mean, I I'm personally a Mets fan, so I usually focus on that like one division. But I uh, when I saw that the Giants were ahead by leaps and bounds, I was really shocked. I'm sure the rest of the world was. Um, so I'm sad to say, but this is the last question of the interview. So I usually like ending my interviews off like this. So if you have one piece of advice to give to young aspiring journalists or to my audience in general, what would that be? If you want to be a journalist, go do journalism. That's really what it comes down to. In this industry, it doesn't really matter where you, where you went to school. It doesn't really matter as much what your grades are. What's going to matter if you want to make it in journalism is that you prove that you're able of going to do journalism. And the best way to learn how to do journalism is by going and doing it, which means go report. Go report, go report, go report. Pitch stories, freelance. Come up with ideas and go report them and, and try to get them published. Uh, if you go to college, go work for your college paper yesterday. That should be the first thing that you do. Uh, if, you, if you're in high school, go work for your high school paper. Go work for the local paper in your community, especially if you live in a smaller community. Uh, that's what's going to make a difference in this field. There's always someone else that's going out and getting clipped. So you want to be that person. And also remember when you're doing this, that what makes a good story, right? It's about creativity. It's having good ideas. It's going out there and thinking about what's a story that I could write that nobody else has ever written before. Uh, if you combine that create that creativeness, creativity with the ambition and drive, you can be successful in this field. You just can't wait for anyone to sort of open the door for you. You have to go do it because you can't simulate it in the classroom. You could try, but it won't be as nearly as successful as going out and just doing it yourself. Well, thank you so much. And I'm sure my audience will appreciate that piece of advice as well. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Diamond, for joining me on my podcast today. It was truly an honor and a pleasure having the opportunity to speak with you and learn about your journalism career as Abner Velsky interviewing Jared Diamond, who's a sports writer for the Wall Street Journal.